Texas talking oh. What was that that you said? Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop up inside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas guys This is Gary Laverne And I write books about really bad guys Like Charles Whitman And Kenneth Allen McDuff And really good guys Like Heman Marion Sweat One day I may write about Reeve Hamilton, and you will have to decide for yourself what kind of guy he is. The good news is you can start now. Here is your host, Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the TripCast for the first week of December. Joining me is executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Editor Emily Ramshaw. Hello there. And assistant managing editor Ian Mitra. I'm here, and I'm excited to talk Mac Brown and Texas football. Let's do it. <laughs> That's uh, that's the one topic we do not. That's like the third rail of the <laughs> TripCast. So the only, the only interesting thing that's on the list, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> right. You uh, can all tune out right now. <laughs> well, I mean, do you do you have a prediction on if Nick Saban will come someday following his defeat? Well, I have not been fa- following the house hunting search, which, which is apparently how you find out who your next head coach is going to be. Right. But I don't know. It's hard to tell. But gosh, if you win a conference championship, can you really get fired? I guess you can, but... That's a tough one. Anyone can be fired at any time. Reeve, that's an important <laughs> lesson for you. Yeah, I'm sort of at the bottom of the totem pole here. Uh, let, let's start with the news of the day before we get to Mac Brown, if we have time. Uh, and that is uh, Wendy Davis's tax returns came out. We're recording this on Wednesday morning. It's not like they just came out. It's that Jay Root, like, dogged them for months, and they finally turned them over. Yeah, they, yeah, they responded just, to constant nagging from right. Jerry. Came out is it's not the, like they were just issued. Came out as the shorthand. <laughs> and they did come out. That was not a. They, they finally gave them up. Was there anything interesting in them that was worth, like uh, all that effort? Yeah, nah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, it, her legal income. So Wendy Davis has already come under fire. And Wendy and, Davis. Wendy state Davis, senator from state Fort senator Worth. from Fort Worth, Democrat running for governor of Texas. Um, <laughs> right. In her in her last race to reclaim her seat, uh, she faced some sort of ethical questions from her opponent at the time, Mark Shelton. Um, you know, over the role that her legal clients played in the legislature and whether there were some conflicts of interest there. So you can expect her legal income to, to potentially play a role in the race. Her legal income has doubled from between 2010 and 2012. A lot of that, most of that money coming from the law firm that she uh, is a partner in with Brian Newby, who's a former Perry staffer. Um, former Perry chief of staff. Former Perry chief of staff. Good work, Ross. Um, and <laughs> nice. the only other sort of interesting thing that I think our commenters were clearly uh, jumping onto this morning is that she's uh, given relatively little money to charity in the last uh, few years, you know, ranging from, I think, about 500 bucks to 1200 bucks. But as Reeve said today, you know, that's no small potatoes. Did I, I don't think I said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than I've given to charity, right. not percentage-wise. There were small potatoes compared to her salary, which was in the 150, 160 range, right? It started off that way. I think it got up to 280. 280, yeah, yeah, in the last year. And so, uh, great. So now, I mean, how does this well, – why so, do people so need the way to know this, this plays, stuff? Right. You know, the way I think this is going to play out in the campaign is I think that the Abbott campaign in particular is going to go – to the same place where the Shelton campaign went last time, which is, you know, okay, so tell us about your public entity clients, you know, the North Texas Transportation Authority and, and others like that. Fort Worth, ISD. Right. Yeah. And what, you know. Airport. And whether those things, those clients had anything to do with any of your official business. So you've got 
these private clients over here and you're working for them as an attorney, there's nothing wrong with that. You've got your job as a senator and as a city councilwoman before that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But did the lines get crossed anywhere? And I think they're going to be trying to show, trying to find places and make us look at places where they think the lines have crossed or where they can argue those lines have crossed. And her response is basically that she's been kind of in a spot where she doesn't she doesn't really want she she says she's open to disclosing who has given her money you know who, who she's worked for but she can't do that she says unless she gets permission from them so it's kind of this game now where she you know says she wants to be open more open about it but right. she's kind of caught in a corner here well and it's 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 interesting because the public clients have to disclose so if I'm the Fort Worth ISD I have to disclose the lawyers I'm paying money to. The lawyer, she argues or has argued or people have argued on her behalf, the lawyer is not in a position to do that. The open records law, they say, applies to the clients but not to the lawyer. She can't spill because of attorney-client privilege, but all of her clients can spill. So you could figure out what all of the public entities are that might have her as right. a lawyer <laughs> and a ask lot each of, open of them records for – Right, exactly. And um, – you know, her opponents have said, no, that's crazy. Just tell us who they are. And she is, she's also said that she's sort of wrapping up her professional business with any of those right. clients in the meantime so that she can be, you know, fully out on the campaign trail without any of those hindrances. What happens uh, next year if she, by chance, doesn't win the governorship? She's going to have to figure out what to do for a living. <laughs> Go back <laughs> to work. She's, she's got plenty of clients she can work with. And, and we should right. say her, her potential opponent, he has to win his primary but Greg safe Abbott. money is on Greg Abbott. He has given his tax returns, correct? His last three, I think, right? Uh, his last – yes, I believe that Greg Abbott, we have his last three returns. And we have uh, – interestingly, we have Dewhurst's um, returns from when he was running for Senate, uh, but they have not yet provided them for uh, this current battle. I think uh, we're – the Trib's getting ready to write a story tomorrow that's a really sort of comprehensive look at um, where all the statewide candidates are and whether they have or have not uh, disclosed their tax returns. And uh, and why, why do we do that? I think last time we did this with the state lawmakers, right, the turnover rate for tax returns was relatively low. I think we when we asked all state lawmakers, we got one response, and it was from James White. Mm-hmm. So That's it was right. pretty slim. Well, we got a lot of responses. Just they were all no's. Well, right. we had one. We had one <laughs> there were one or two. On yeah. no. <laughs> there were one or two who were willing to do it, but sort of only if everybody else did, mm-hmm. and and kind of pulled back. Yeah. That's those we call well, those I mean, there, leaders. There were a couple of folks say that they would give, but they just couldn't pull the trigger because right. they just didn't want to be the only one out. Well, there. and I think mm-hmm. the you know I think the um, kind of the word went out among the among the colleagues. Don't do that. Don't set a precedent that I have to follow. So. I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk about about why this is or isn't valuable. I think the the theory has been that, you know, if you're running for a statewide office, that taxpayers should, you know, have the opportunity to know what else might be motivating you, where your income has come from, what kind of conflicts you could potentially have. Right. Yeah. Anyone right. anyone and, disagree? Well, the, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the question, the question here is, you know, where does your privacy – and if you're, just because you want to run for public office, just because I want to you know, serve my community in some way or another. And where's the line? Does this apply at city council, at school board, at state house? At, you know, I mean, where does, it, you know, where does it start and stop? You know, it's, it's, it, it's really driven by statewide races and by national races where, um, you know, the level of scrutiny is higher and the level of privacy is much, much, much lower. 
So yeah. can you, shouldn't uh, candidates just accept at this point, especially in this day and age, that once they decide to run for something that prominent that they have no privacy at all? The question is where does that prominent, where is that line? And if you I think it's land commissioner. And if, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have no privacy, then what's to inspire you know, anybody who you want to run to actually run for office? Right. It'll inspire them to, from a very young age, not do anything uh, risky or Not dangerous. make any money. I mean, I think some of these people don't want to turn over their tax returns because they don't want to expose how little they actually make. We've had a couple of people That's who we've I'm asked. Turning mine over. We've had a couple of statewide candidates who we've asked um, say that they aren't turning over their tax returns because they didn't have to file tax returns because they made so little money. So they had to file returns. They just didn't have to pay anything. Well, right. Hmm. If well, they haven't filed returns, that'd be interesting. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I'd like that list, right? Well, I guess speaking of privacy, we can move on into our uh, in our into our drone conversation. Right, the IRS is hiring drones, and no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to come pick up your tax return. Well, do, I, I don't <laughs> deliver a pizza. Texas Congressman Ted Poe did express some concerns about Amazon's. Plan. There seem there Amazon's seem to be a lot infomercial of infomercial on there sixty to, minutes. There seem to be a lot of skeptics about it's the not really a plan. It's real just, planness of this plan. It's not it looks like the TV plan. version of Popular Science magazine. In the future, people will get their you know books from <laughs> right. little well, helicopters flying around their neighborhood. Right. What Poe said was Poe said it was like something out of the Jetsons, which he seemed to be using as a pejorative. Oh, I guess I he's, love a the Jetsons. he's a Flintstones guy. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so the 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 non plan is to have little drones. <laughs> deliver your packages right to your front door in 30 minutes. But there's been some uh, wariness, not just from Ted Poe over drones in Texas. Isn't that right? That is true. In the last uh, legislative session, there, Lance Gooden filed a bill, State Rep Lance Gooden, Terrell, Terrell good one, mm-hmm. um, filed a bill uh, that was, I think, you know, backed by some landowners in Texas who really wanted to um, prevent, you know, unmanned aerial drones from being sort of able to go over their property willy-nilly, look into their windows. And, you know, I think one case in particular they were concerned about was checking out, you know, livestock and people's cattle. So there was a bill filed in the last session that would put a whole bunch of restrictions and safeguards in place in the future when Texas's skies are buzzing with drones. But, um, you know, I, I do think there's sort Buy of a, a shotgun. Yeah, well, in your backyard. exactly. I mean, I was just going to say, if you imagine just like Joe Biden. Amazon drones coming over, imagine you could just shoot those little suckers out of the sky and suddenly well, think of, you, know, think of, you, you know, have the, a new flat the, the screen TV. <laughs> Amazon and Walmart will have drones that are just up there to shoot down each other's drones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'll be great. We should say that. World uh, War Three. Comments are not endorsements here on the TripCast. <laughs> Some of them are. No, but that's, I would, I would actually, I would actually feel less secure about receiving my packages if they were coming via drone instead of via. You feel less secure? Why? Because they might fall through your roof. No, no because they, I, I mean, less uh, sure that I would receive them because I feel like I trust people more than the robots. drone won't hang around for your signature. Yeah. Is it? The- yeah, right. Right, right mean, now you can track your packages and say, okay, it's at the Dallas station. Now you're going to get what latitude and longitude to. Yeah. Right, Although exactly. You, it'll be a little finder. It'll fly around on Google Maps. <laughs> yeah. Google is, will let Amazon do that. <laughs> but while we joke about it, I do think this is like going to, as we saw in the last legislative session, it's going to be a major push that lawmakers are going to have to deal with more and more. Well, the whole pitch on this, I mean, just the, you know, the business proposition here is sort of weird. If the idea is that you could deliver things within 30 minutes of them being ordered – isn't that kind of like having a store within 30 minutes of your location? <laughs> Couldn't yeah. you just go over Can't there and buy the Can't someone just come on you know? bike and bring it to you? Hello. Yeah, but it's like the difference between going to a movie or just turning something on on Netflix. You know, one is a lot easier. One is a lot better going to the movies. Right. So you think going to the store is a lot better than not going to the store? It depends on what day of the week it is. 
I'd rather go to book people than shop online. We have know. become the view. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> you knew it was going to happen at some point. It, it, this is one of those interesting things where there's a new technology, and everybody's first reaction, or a lot of people's first reaction, is <gasps> we've got to stop that, right? Um, so that's the stage we're in. I don't know. You know, it's clear that drone technology is around and relatively cheap and easy to do, and they're going to find some uses for it. And they're going to, you know, this will be a, you know, one of those issues that comes up over several sessions of the legislature and through several sessions of Congress is like, it's going to be, what about this? What about this? What about this one more thing? What about this thing? If I'm a banker and I'm making loans to farmers based on their livestock, it'd be cool if I could send a thing out there to get a headcount instead of sending a guy out and sending some, one of my staffers out for 10 hours to go drive around the field and try to get a headcount on cows. I got to drive a drone last year uh, when w- they were working on this bill in the legislature, and uh, I drove it outside the Capitol, and it was really cool. And uh, it nearly crashed into John Whitmire as he was approaching. <laughs> that was not the cool part. Of it. <laughs> yeah, was... right. Although that's, I did get an up-close and that's personal why, look. That's why the legislature will never allow drones. <laughs> John Whitmire thought it was pretty cool. Now, of course, if any lawmakers out there have After tax— he got up and dusted himself. Yeah, yeah I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> if anyone has tax returns that they would like to send to the Tribune via drone, I think you're more than welcome to. should only take half an hour. Right. Right? Max. Uh, some of those candidates might include the uh, guys. They're all guys. Is this running. a transition? Or are we in a tr- no? We're in a transition okay. now. Okay. I mean, we were in a transition. Yeah, right. Now we're sort of stuck midstream. Where's going here? I was going to say the guys running for attorney general because they all are dudes. That was I was so I wrote a story about this this week, and uh, the overwhelming response in the comment section yeah, was three was, white guys. Oh yeah, three white guys, and the Democratic opponent is also a white guy, and uh, it, it's. Uh, People are not seem and to the be guy, not impressed by the diversity of their eyes. So and the guy covering Fox, the race. Texas is not all in yeah. the past. Is that what you're, some of it's right here? <laughs> right. The guy covering the race, also a white guy. But I am not in my 50s, so that's how it's different. That's really the one difference. Not yet. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I don't know. This, this race well, is – They're having a hard time differentiating themselves, aren't right. they? Well, you, get, you, have, you had a pretty interesting lead in your story when you were talking about this fundraiser for Ken Paxton and uh, – you know, the person holding the fundraiser was basically saying, you know, don't use this word. I'm more conservative than everyone right. else. You're Go beyond all conservative. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, I, and I think her point was sort of, I mean, it's just become such a meaningless phrase. Right. So when you have these crowded fields, you have every, everyone uh, in the lieutenant governor's race saying they're the most conservative. Everyone in the attorney general's race saying they're the most conservative. And really, the, you have to really scratch below the surface to get to the differences in a lot of these guys. Because and the policy issues. I was going to say, is, the there a po- is there a significant policy difference between the three? No, no, not really. I mean, they're all going to be. You know, we've heard yet. I mean, there may be one. We right, heard yet. they're all going to be for voter ID. Um, you know, they're all pledging think, to continue Abbott's mission. And, yeah, you know, with, uh, I mean, at, against at, Obamacare at Trip Fest, like the biggest differentiation was that one had three kids, one had four, and one had five. Like <laughs> there, that was some, <laughs> some, there was some argument about how many they, kids they had. They squabbled <laughs> about who had more kids. Right. One one of them was accused of uh, I think Barry Smitherman questions if if Dan Branch had twins right <laughs> and if that counted but he doesn't have twins so Dan Branch has the most kids but you know they also even have... if he had twins he would have the most kids <laughs> no but the twins twins count as one is that right everyone knows that <laughs> right get into college for half price yeah. Yeah, you know they all wear the um, same shoes it's great no but I, I mean just the you have to scratch the surface but the thing is within the Though they have sort of – they reach the same conclusions policy-wise a lot of the times. Their process and sort of the angles they come at things do appear to be different. So if you scratch the surface – you know, I talked to uh, David Jennings at Big Jolly Politics uh, who covers conservative politics in Texas. And 
you know, he said like this, the attorney general's race really sort of illustrates the war within the GOP. Because um, if you look at them, you have Dan Branch, who, you know, has been a pretty active uh, chairman in Strauss's house. You have Ken Paxton, who ran against Strauss for speaker. You have Barry Smitherman, who's coming at it from a sort of a different non-legislative angle. Um, so the outcome could be an interesting sort of, I guess, canary in the Republican coal mine. What's here, though, that a voter is going to look at to make a decision? I mean, you know, what what is this difference significant enough for a Republican voter to go to the polls in March and say, oh, this is the one who does blank. This is, you know, I mean, three I've, boxes uh, of soap. What's I really the think I really think it's going to be more... Yeah, the the only way – unless you're going to get into the weeds on the issues and very few voters are going to vote, let alone get into the weeds. Right. Uh, then it's sort of, well, who endorsed them and what I know about those people already. So you right. have like – And who's close to Strauss and how do I feel about right. Strauss? I mean that's – Rick Santorum is traveling around with Ken Paxton today. Mm-hmm. Um, George W. Bush gave Branch – some money. Branch was a finance director in his national campaign and in Bush's national campaign and, and a and, supporter in his in his state campaigns when he was governor. And Smitherman sort of has some expertise and ties to the oil and gas industry because of his role on the uh, uh, Texas Railroad Commission. Commission and the Public Utility Commission. Right. You've uh, had, so, yeah, Branch has really been trying to sort of keep his name in the headlines on social conservative issues. I mean, he filed an amicus brief in uh, over House Bill 2, the abortion regulations that are tied up in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Didn't he file another amicus brief, too? He filed too? an amicus brief about... Um, what was, it was about the divorce case, the the couple that was married in Massachusetts, same-sex, same-sex couple, tried to get a divorce case. here. So right. he filed a thing defending the uh, one-man, one-woman marriage mm-hmm. law. So since we don't recognize the marriage, we're not going to allow the divorce? That, right. That so argument. he's right. been successful at staying in the headlines on social conservative issues, which I think he probably really feels like he needs in light of his relationship with Strauss and sort of the pushback that uh, Strauss has. I don't think most of these voters know who Strauss is. You don't think the don't Tea think Party folks ID- who come vote in the primaries do? I don't think his name ID is that high. Hmm. I mean, well, we'll, we'll see. But, well, then so, but then you just—you yeah. sort of don't—they don't, just end then up. There's no factor taking other people's word for it. Isn't that sort of what you have to go on? Like, mm-hmm. well, I like uh, what Michael Quinn Sullivan has to say, so right. I'll listen to him. You know, when we polled it, the the haven't decided was really really high, um, which was particularly interesting in Smitherman's case since he was on the statewide ballot last year, but. But nobody knows who these guys are, and it all, it's almost like an eeny, meeny, miny, mo race, you know, where you, which name looks better on paper to you. There's a really busy – the governor's race is sucking up a lot of oxygen. The lieutenant governor's race will be in the Republican primary. It's a vigorous race with four candidates, you know. It's sort of already least, sucking up a lot of oxygen. We've talked about it several times here on the well, I mean, and not really done and, the AG's and that's, Those are the guys that are going to get most of the TV time, too. That's where most of the money is. So – the AG candidates are going to have a little bit of a hard time breaking through even to get their names known, much less to get anything associated with their names known. I, I think they've got a real problem. And they have to do it in a real tight period of time, too, because no one's paying attention right now. And once you get back from right. the holidays, you know, rewrote, you know, early voting starts just, you know. Yeah, six right. weeks, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, was, I was talking to Smitherman, and he was like, well, you know, I was like, oh, well, you have the holidays, and then it, you have January. He's like, yeah, but January, you have all the bowl games. <laughs> and then you have the Super Bowl, February 2nd. So really, they just have two weeks between the Super Bowl and early voting. Don't it's, don't expect Ian to be on the Tribcast anytime right. soon. <laughs> this, is, this is it. Yeah. We'll just have a little section, and now bowl news. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So, uh, so that's that race. Any other race catching anyone's eye at the moment? You know, there we're in that period where we're in the last week before the candidates have to file. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, December 9th is the filing deadline. 
for these races. And there's always some hijinks and some weird stuff at the end. So somebody will not file that we have so far expected to file for re-election. And oftentimes, you know, a candidate will decide not to run for re-election and won't tell anybody except for an ally. And they'll wait until the last minute and at 4.30 on Monday, when the deadline, mm-hmm. they won't walk in, but, you know, their so, so their pal well. will and nobody will have time to react. So, um, you know, I'm, I, the thing to watch in the next week is, you know, the ballots are going to finally firm up. I'm not convinced everybody who's declared for races is actually going to get into races. I think some of them have scratched around and looked at it and um, have decided the support's not there. You know, one of the things, you know, you if you announce in September or October – you're kind of telling the finance primary people, hey, I'm here and I'm dragging the sack. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm taking donations. And if you get to the point where it's time to file, time is short before the election, and you see that you haven't got the resources or you haven't got the support or things aren't coming together well, that's when you know a candidate – it's hard to do this for candidates, but that's when a lot of candidates look at it and go, is this really a doable thing? Uh, the notable one, because she's talked about it openly, is Deborah Medina has talked about – I want to run for controller. I am going to run for controller. But if the support's not there, I'm not going to just, you know, waste all my time and go into a campaign and try to raise some money and blow it. And I don't want to, you know, waste my time, waste their money. So some of them are actually, you know, for all of the talk about exploratory campaigns, some of them are actually exploring this thing. And I think by Monday we'll know who – Whose explorations fell short? Is, what about uh, what do we expect Tom Pockin to yeah, do? Yeah, I was just going to ask: Is he the biggest name who hasn't yet formally filed? I, you know, he's one of the biggest names that hasn't filed. Um, you know, I think it's still possible that you could see some names that in races that um, still look ripe for competition. If you had a name in politics, if you have a political name that's well known, the AG, the the Agriculture Commission race is virtually open. It's, I mean, there's a bunch of candidates in there, but you know, virtually nobody knows who they are. If a Nolan Ryan, he was the rumor, mm-hmm. and I don't think he's going to run. But if somebody like that jumped in, boom, you just won. How many times has Nolan Ryan been rumored to be about to run? Four or five. He, he's got the slot that used to be <laughs> occupied by Roger Staubach. For years it was, you know, <laughs> yeah. Roger Staubach's going to run for this or that or the other thing, and you'd call Roger Staubach and he'd, no. Uh, <laughs> so Nolan Ryan is that guy now. Well, maybe seventh time is the charm. Right. Although I guess he has a few days left. Has till Monday. Maybe someday it will be Mac Brown. If you're well, yeah, if he has nothing to do. <laughs> right. Mac Brown, next, you know, Mac Brown jumps into the, into the agriculture commissioner race. I think he'll probably be agriculture commissioner. He's been, you know, he's been working with Longhorns for years. That seems to be, you know, that's, agric- that's on a field, on a green field. That's <laughs> agriculture. Lots of stretches here. Yeah. That's what we do best. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, the, the issue that you're going to hear about the most, I mean, you hear it in the attorney general's race, which I've been covering a bit, and you know, lieutenant governor's race, of course, is uh, Obamacare. Because everyone, especially in Republican primaries, looks north to D.C. And I think, Emily, you were saying that uh, D.C. North. is north. Oh, what do you mean yeah. you guess it's north? Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly east. Mostly east. Yeah. No, it's, it's not. A, which one is it's on a different longitude the, the, and latitude. The problem, the problem with Obamacare in a Republican primary is it doesn't differentiate the candidates. You know, it's me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. It, you know, maybe when you get yeah, to no, a, no, I hate Obamacare more. Yeah, right. Uh, maybe We're talking when about you get to November, right. <laughs> when you get to November, the Republicans are going to run against Obama and try to link the Democrats to Obama. I think that's clear. But you know, right now it's kind of you know, 
But there are some some sort of hinky issues here in Texas. I mean, you know, first you have you mean on Obamacare, just generally yeah, on, on Obamacare, <laughs> but also generally. But the insurance department has, you know, under pressure from the governor, um, put out floated out some new proposed rules that they want to place on the federal navigators who are supposed to be helping people in Texas sign up for um, insurance. Uh, and so those are pretty strict requirements in some ways that seem to conflict with the federal rule. So they're expect a little bit of drama there. Were these prompted by that James O'Keefe video? Uh, I'm not sure. You know, James O'Keefe is the guy that right. uh, sort of did the heavily edited undercover video that oh, basically oh, oh, took oh, down no, no, Acorn. No. Right. Okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Right. And that, he did a video with some navigators in Dallas. That actually happened after this had already been okay. in the works. So there was a, a big push from Republican leaders to sort of tighten up these rules on federal navigators. Um, you know, Then the latest thing we've seen is that the HHSC commissioner, Kyle Janik, spoke up yesterday and said, Hey, look, feds, you know, your website is so screwed up that you're demanding that we enroll people in Medicaid, like with very little information on them. And this is going to create a huge problem for us and more work on the back end. You know, are you planning on funding our efforts to fix your problem, basically? So this Medicaid referral thing has become a pretty big issue in light of the challenges with the website. Wasn't he also questioning the, you know, veracity, like the quality of the data, too? Yeah, like, exactly. he wasn't he saying, like, in test runs, they were getting people from New York or something? Something that, yeah. you know, he said the feds did a test run expansion. on this. Yeah, right. The feds did a test run on this data transfer by just using three test cases, which he was saying is like a ridiculously no, low number. And that the people they were since sending along were people who were like, you know, registered as living in other states, yeah. not even in Texas. So clearly there are still some hiccups in this system that are creating some problems in, here in Texas. Now, obviously, there's a lot of political motivation here in Texas for things to not work. Certainly. Right. I was going to say, I mean, does the Texas Health and Human Services right. folks, do they actually want to help solve the problems? Or are they just well, like, oh, that's a problem, but the, the, fix it, the, yeah. come the, back to The me. problem with the political argument is that it's the thing's so screwed up right. that there's there are actual problems here. And even if even if you are not wanting this to work... Um, then it, you're getting your wish. Well, you're kind of getting your wish, but it's the other guys are doing it. It's like, you know, if, if they're sending you Medicaid cases right. from New York... Yeah. Something's yeah. screwed up here. Right. I mean, and that is a giant cluster for all the states. That's north of here. Right. And <laughs> yeah. before with the site, it was just the site and registering. And now you're talking about transferring personal information. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there the security questions about that. It was seeing the way the site rolled out, sure. And Texas has already been worried about what you call the woodwork effect, which is, you know, we didn't expand Medicaid here, but while we're reminding so many people that they might be able to get insured, suddenly we're going to find even more people who qualify for Medicaid under the current system. And so Texas is having to deal with that in addition to having all these applicants who probably aren't even eligible here in Texas because they live in New York. (laughs) The fact fact that it's all screwed up doesn't let you really get to the political argument. You know, it's... um, you can just demonstrably say this thing's all screwed up and let the other guy, you know, if it was smooth as glass and they were trying to get in the way of it, then it'd be a political fight. But this is this is operational. This thing's this thing's not a working. Mess. Yeah. All right, well, let, let's go to a straight political fight then. OK. Uh, although maybe this is operations. I think, Ross, you recently wrote about uh, the potential death of the filibuster in the Texas Senate. Well, I just, you know, the Dan Patrick and others, but Dan Patrick in particular has been saying for years that we ought to get rid of the Senate's two-thirds rule, which is a rule that says you have to have two-thirds of the senators who are in the room agree before you can bring something up for consideration in the Senate. 
it effectively allows a minority of 11 senators to block anything. It's not always partisan. Sometimes, in fact, it's often not partisan. It's often, you know, rural versus urban or suburban versus, you know, rural or whatever. But it's also often partisan. And Patrick has um, argued that the Republicans have a majority. A majority ought to be able to rule the Senate in the way that it does. And you, this was decided in the election and shouldn't be decided in the rules of the Senate. And he's fallen short for years. In fact, it came up for a vote last year, and he didn't have enough votes. And rather than um, show how big their numbers were or how small their numbers were, everybody just voted for it. So the Senate unanimously readopted the two-thirds rule this year. But it's still up for debate. And now Harry Reid in the, in the battles in the U.S. Senate over appointments and over the 60-vote cloture rule that the uh, Republicans had been using to block Obama's appointments – He's made the case for the Dan Patricks of the world, you know, and, and I expect this to probably come back. You know, they couldn't get the traction that they needed here in Texas, but now they're getting it from Washington and they're getting it from the other party even better. And the New York Times wrote about how uh, that decision was in part motivated by the federal judge's uh, uh, handling of HB2, didn't they? Didn't they? The decision to not do the filibuster, to get rid of the filibuster so they could make, get their appointments out. Anyway, uh, that's one. Yeah, that's a thing I read. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, Good too. Thing like, this is, this is specifically with, with the – in the U.S. Senate, this is about nominees, right? Exactly. Right. This is not talking about legislation, right. mm-hmm. which, right. you know, when we're talking about the two-thirds rule in the state Senate, I mean, we're talking mostly about legislation. With, right, and they blocked 43 right now, I think, yeah. is, I yeah. think is, is the number. So, so the, the issue in the federal – the federal issue is a little bit different in that it's a cloture rule and it's, as you say, it's only on um, these appointments – and it's and the other thing that's always different is it's always partisan up there. Um, but the fact that they've you know changed a long-standing rule because a minority was blocking a majority from getting its way makes the argument for makes an you know an, an um, it's an analog for the Texas argument. So when you come back, you can say just as the Democrats in Washington did, we Republicans here in Texas think that the Texas Senate ought to change its rule. Now Patrick has amended his original idea of getting rid of the two-thirds rule. Why don't we just lower it a little bit? Why don't we make it 60% instead of 66%, which happens to be just the number you need right for the Republicans at. currently mm-hmm. in the Senate to control everything. And they say that compromise is dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this podcast is at least. Uh, I mean, unless anyone has any final thoughts. Anything else you've read that we don't know about? This was a lot have of subjects. Have, have you read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt? Not yet. No, it's that. on my list. Yeah, it's, it's really on good deck, so far. Yeah. Yeah, started over Thanksgiving. Uh, if you have questions or comments or book recommendations, <laughs> send our them drones to, to deliver a book <laughs> to you. <laughs> yeah. Send them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Uh, we'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music, uh, which you're about to hear a segment of. After I say, on behalf of Emily Ross, Ian, and our producer Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening. Duck walks into a bar, says, got any grapes? No, never mind. You don't know that one? No, is that a joke?